Hi, welcome to the Trauma Thrivers podcast. Delighted to have you with us. I'm Lula Bentz, your host, a psychotherapist, a trauma expert, and a survivor myself. Lovely to have you with us. The Trauma Thrivers podcast is for anybody who has been through any sort of developmental trauma or who has complex PTSD. This podcast aims to help educate, inspire and support those of us that are on a trauma healing journey. We've got stories, steps and various solutions to trauma to help you heal. If you'd like more information or tips or tools or strategies, please go to traumathrivers.com. You can also find this podcast on my YouTube channel, Lula Bent's Trauma Thrivers. If you'd like to join our community of thrivers, please find us on Facebook under Trauma Thrivers. Chiron Clinics proudly sponsors the Trauma Thrivers podcast. Chiron Clinics offer residential and outpatient treatment for anyone trying to recover from the effects of trauma. Chiron's clinics look through the lens of trauma to treat common mental health problems and behavioural disorders, which can lead to self-harming, addictions, depression, anxiety and relationship issues. All treatment protocols used at Chiron clinics use the latest research on trauma in the brain as a guide, and the combination can be highly effective in restoring nervous system regulation. For more information, see chironclinics.com. Hi, Trauma Thrivers. Welcome back. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Mark Escott. Mark is the CEO and co-founder of Life Chance. And Life Chance Education work with children who have experienced trauma and also the professionals who support them. Mark's personal and professional journey give him an absolute unique insight into working with vulnerable children, as you'll go on to hear. A difficult childhood saw Mark experiencing many of the challenges and adverse childhood experiences that are so common amongst the children he works with. His decision to found School for Inspiring Talents and Life Chance Education was driven by a commitment to transform the life chances of young people and their families. And he is doing just that. And for that reason, I am delighted to introduce him to Trauma Thrivers Group and you today and to get him to tell us a little bit about himself and his story. Oh, thank you, Lou. Thank you for inviting me on today. It was lovely to chat last week. We talked about so much. And when you, you said today, like, what should we talk about? So, yeah. Um, so, first of all, for the people who are watching and listening, so my name is Mark Escott, as Lou said. I'm the CEO and co-founder of an organization called Life Chance. We're a therapeutic education provider that specializes in working with young people and families who have experienced trauma. Um, so we're committed to transforming the life chances of the young people and families we work with. Just for the audience and viewers, I think, as far as I remember, you're the only real place in the UK well, that kind of does the work a, yeah. Yeah, in, that you do. Yeah, there's not that many schools like ourselves, I say. So the, 
the, the organization is called Life Chance and we have Life Chance Education, which runs our schools and the schools are called School for Inspiring Talents. Wonderful. They have therapeutic schools. Um, so we have two sites. There's between about, you know, we have between 40 and 50 students maximum in the schools. Um, and then we also have Life Chance Care, okay. which is our therapeutic team. Um, so that's headed up by our consultant clinical psychologist, Dr. Belfield. We've got speech and language therapists, um, education specialists, um, the team manager, um, Jules works for us. There's trauma recovery practitioners that we work with. We've got right. Blue, our therapy dog. Oh, um, amazing. Amazing team. So they work across our own schools. Okay. And then we look at support in the community as well through life chance training and consultancy. And that does exactly what it says on the team. We go out and deliver training to multi-professional audiences around the impact of trauma and how and how schools can become more trauma informed. And I we're one of it. a handful of therapeutic schools like this in the UK. Yes. But there's not that many. We're a day school. So okay. one of the reasons why I set this up was there's residential schools that deal with support therapeutically. So a lot of the young people that I was working with in Devon um, were not being able to fit into mainstream education. Okay. The trauma they'd experience and displaying challenging behavior. So they were being sent out of county to go into residential schools. And then, so they were in some really, some of these young people have been adopted by some lovely families. They were in really secure foster homes, care homes. Um, they were work, you know, living with parents who have had their issues, but were working through it successfully. Yes. They were being taken away from these secure mm. homes. No, the so last thing you want to do. Day school. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the, so the main driver of why I set up Life Chance and School for Inspiring Talents was I am and was one of these young people myself. Absolutely. I, I'm a trauma thriver, like a lot of the people listening to this today as well. So that was something that really meant a lot to me was inventing a school that wasn't available for me yes when i was a young man and not available sadly as yet until you go nationwide of course to many other young people who are being ostracized or sent away from school due to conduct due to kind of trauma you know so we're not treating the trauma which is what you guys are doing which is amazing yeah. And it's exactly that. So it's like, you know, what, you know, I think there will always be a need for maybe some schools like mine. Yes. But we're starting to notice that this can be done in more mainstream schools. And that's our mission is to actually, you know, spread the word, you know, and help young and help other schools to become more trauma aware. Yes. So we can become more, so schools become more trauma healing environments. I love so it. We, we work with lots of young people who've experienced severe trauma, you know, physical, emotional, sexual abuse domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse at quite a high level. But yes. as we know, there are lots of people that are experienced traumatic events that um, with the right support, the right care, and the right, you know, um, emotionally available adults around them, coaching them through these processes, we could help them. You know, yes. like, you know, as a young person, it's how you make meaning of this. Absolutely. Because my, my own childhood was a mixture of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse as a young boy. Okay. And not understanding it. You know, what I realize now is, you know, you know, as that young boy, I had no one to talk to. No one to, no one listened to me. Um, really didn't believe what was going on. I didn't know how to share it. So I, I internalized it. 
Yeah. And the only thing I could figure out as a young child was I must have been doing something wrong. It must have been my fault. Yes. Because that's what we do think as children, don't we? We can't blame anybody else. We can't make our parents the wrong or in the wrong because that would just be too terrifying for most children. So we do take it out against ourselves and make our, you know, that's where we get our belief system about who we are in the world. And of course, you know, I guess it all goes downhill from then. And that beliefs you say that life script that we create. Yeah. I remember being very early and creating a life script that I'm bad and wrong. Yes. And there was something wrong with me. And it's like, you know, and then if people, I was even then told, you know, look at the um, perpetrators and I, you know, with myself, it's like, if you tell anyone, yeah, you know, you'll be made wrong, you'll be told off. So you start to believe that. Yes. Yourself. And it's like, so there is something wrong with me. Yeah. And then, you know, you're, you know, you're seeing more and more. And then, there was a conversation I had with someone a few years ago and they're talking about talking about trauma and um, oh, you're going to open up a can of worms and you yeah. can't talk about it. And I was going, well, actually, I disagree because I because no one talked to me, I internalized it. And I'm and I the meanings I had it weren't good. Yes. It made it mean I was bad and wrong and I was a naughty boy. Yeah. That became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course it did. Of so, course it did. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't have very good memories of being in school myself. You know, I don't think any of my teachers actually believe that I now work in a school and let alone run no, a no. life of Sundays. They yeah. used to be a joke in my family that they, I used to get dressed up in my suit to go to work and they believed I went to a cafe or they pretended because I was, I was excluded <laughs> from school. And then I ended up in the criminal justice system. Okay, Being did you? How yeah. how old were you then when when I that was, happened? I was eighteen years old. Okay. I, yeah, I was um, but I was I started using drugs to numb all this stuff out. You know, drugs and alcohol at the time. I was started at twelve. Yeah. You know, Do you know it's so often that I hear, and in all my years in addiction services, and also with myself, you know, that already by 11, 12, 13, 14, you're already on the addictive path, trying to numb out. Yeah, so what happened to you, Mark? How what was what was your experience? Did you start with smoking or drinking? Yeah, smoking or? cigarettes as a you know, and then drinking. I remember my parents would have parties, and I remember coming down on a Sunday morning, and my first experience was taking cigarettes out of the ashtray and smoking them. Wow. Drinking beer out of the bits of beer that were left in cans and experiencing that, and then going on to um you, you know, smoking weed. And I, I think, let's like, say, you know, when you're that young and you're experimenting, you naturally gravitate to older children because, you know, I wanted to, I needed older children to get me the booze, get me my pot. So by the time I was 14, 15, that was happening. Then again, I started to then do the same. I was then yeah. selling drugs and alcohol and, and violence was quite a big part for me. I was, I was a very angry young man. I'm not surprised. And football violence and things like that was a way out of numbing myself. I don't, yeah. I don't think I realised at the time, though. No, I don't think, I didn't have the vocabulary back then to realise what I was no. doing. And then by the time I was 18, I ended up living in a hostel for young men on probation, serving a two-year um, suspended prison sentence for theft. Crikey. And a few other things, I was on the run, you know. And like I say, I, I'm really sad that there were six of us, and there's only two of us still alive today. What, six um, of you siblings? No, no sorry, six of us lived in this hostel, six young oh, men. Oh, okay. And then there was only four of us alive. Oh. The rest have died through suicide and drug overdose. And sadly, through my work, um, I did some work about 
12, 13 years ago in a hostel, which is very similar to what I lived in. And I was, there was this young boy living there and then his dad turned up on a Sunday and it happened to be this other boy I lived in the hostel. So that realization wow. that I started yeah. to see the intergenerational yeah. impact of trauma and abuse. Yeah. And it started to hit home then. Was like, oh my God. You know, so he was repeating that and yes. I was, you know, so, but it was a very powerful part of my life. I remember I was on probation. I was coming to the end of my two year probation order. Um, I started to do some voluntary work with a charity. Um, and my probation officer was, um, I wanted to go and do an NVQ in social care. And he actually told me he didn't think I was clever enough. Oh, Gosh. It was a bit like a red rag to a bull. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the sort of person you say you can't do that. So I did train. And in a way, it was right because I'd never completed it because it was a bit difficult, but that was for lots of reasons. But he then asked me what I wanted to do next in life. And I sort of, you know, and I explained to him that I wanted to do his job. And he asked me why, because I said, well, actually, you're <laughs> And um, I, I realized that I could, I told him I could read books on his topic. I could learn to do him, but he could never learn to be me. He yeah. hadn't had lived experience. And the conversation was a bit rougher than that for a few more fruity words, though, because I didn't have the vocabulary I have now. But I realized that I wanted to make a change to the system right. from the people receiving it to those creating it to those delivering it. You know? yeah. and, I, and that's why I, I wanted to go out and I said I wanted to be a translator. Right. But I realized that I could learn his language, but he couldn't learn mine. And yeah. that's what I set out to be was a translator. And then, um, yeah, struggled for quite a few years trying to train because I was still suffering with addiction. Okay, yeah. When did the addiction get... How did you crack that nut? It's a, I see it like a bit like a pendulum, Lou. I was, like, it was, I was on this pendulum and it would swing like one way to the other and, and I'd, I'd do quite well and I was succeeding. I'd start to do some... When I started to do some work, I was training as a drugs worker as well and a youth worker because I wanted to be this translator... Yes. And it would go really well. And then I'd use more relapse. And I was using cocaine by this time. I was a cocaine addict. Okay. Mostly sniffing, but smoking crack as well. Um, very pleasant. And and there was this moment like through my twenties where I'd be doing well, not doing well, like a pendulum. And I just remember having this realization. I was at a party in Brighton. I was living in Brighton at the time, working as a youth worker, street-based youth worker. And I was telling someone at the party about the work I do, you know, whilst smoking a crack pipe, yeah? And, in, well, you know, thinking that I was the coolest person in the world in my 20s, living in Brighton, party scene, and expecting them to tell me how bloody great I was, you know, coked out my head, ego the size of a house. And this person looked at me with utter disgust and went, so you're a professional hypocrite. And that moment of them saying that to me. Yeah. There was, and then again, it was like, I realized that on the next upswing of the pendulum in the positive direction, I had to let the hell go. Because if I didn't let go then, I don't think I ever would have. Yes. So it was that sort of realization. And, you know, I was in my late 20s, I think it's about 29 by this time. And I realized I had to give up cocaine. And so I found, you know, I found recovery meetings and that. But I yeah. did private therapy and some coaching. Okay. And... I remember looking around my life and looking back as you do in recovery, you know, and just realizing that my school years weren't that great, you know, and I, it wasn't that great and I didn't enjoy school and realized that if I'd have had some people around me 
that could help me, life would have been a bit different. Yes. So I, I made a declaration to the coach I was working with, life coach, and I told them that I was going to be an unstoppable stand for the transformation of the education system, that I was going to transform the education system and it would need to be more healing. Right. And then they were like, but you've never done that. And I was like, well, I'm going to do it. You know, and I was in recovery. And then we had this amazing conversation around integrity. And that was a really powerful moment for me because I didn't understand what the word meant. And when I asked my coach and she told me what integrity meant, I was like, oh, shit, I don't have any of that. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, that's scary stuff. So we had this interesting conversation that if I was to, if I was to share my story with the world, what would happen if I triggered people and yeah. they like it and they wanted to talk about it? But because some of my crimes that I was talking about were uns unsolved, so I could have still been arrested. Okay. So and that was scary. So we I don't know where it came from. You know, um, you know, in, in early recovery, your brain's all over the place. Yep. Um, and I decided in this crazy moment that the only way to get my integrity back in was I was going to hand myself into the police for every crime I'd ever committed. Right. I still to this day don't quite know why I did this. I say it was the early days of recovery. I um, worked with my coach and I went to the police station and spoke to the man behind the desk and he didn't quite understand me. Then two CID officers came out and they took me inside and I told them what I was doing. I think they thought I was absolutely crazy. And I ended up filling in three sheets of A4 paper with all the different things I'd done in my life. It's a sort of long story short, it took three months to look into it. Right. At the end, they kept going back to me and asking me questions and came back to it. And then I got a phone call asking me to meet the chief of police. So I went and met with him and that was scary because it's a police training college as well. Yeah. Um, and they asked me why I was doing it. I explained that I wanted to make a difference to the, my community. And I wanted to, I was not what I wanted, I was turning my life around. Um, and I was looking at, I could have done 10 years for those crimes, but we had a conversation around my integrity again. And he was basically really got, I wanted to be a man of my word. And it was like, I you know, basically, if I gave him my word that I wouldn't commit any more crime and I would go out and succeed on my promise to transform the education system. And then that's what I did. And I gave my word to the chief of police, you know, and I wasn't prosecuted. And I went out and, he, you know, I, I yeah, I've Brilliant. done that. And that, that was a massive turning point, a bit crazy yes. story. And I tell some people, some people still don't believe me that I did it. Yeah, no, that's amazing story. Amazing. So you put down all the, the, you know, the coke and the crack and everything else. And then when did you discover that it was trauma that was driving it all? Yeah, I think so. A bit later, you know, actually I really got to see a bit later that, the, you know, the first gateway drug for me was trauma. It wasn't yeah. the cigarettes or the, the alcohol or stuff. It was trauma. Um, so, I, you know, because I committed to working in the education system. I've done a lot of youth work and drugs work, as I said in the past. And this amazing, amazing opportunity came up to work in a school when I was 30 years old. So I'm 48 now. Um, and it was to set up a sort of pilot project for working with young people and mentoring them who were children of danger being excluded. Okay. So I started to do that piece of work and continued in that school, went to another school to set up a project. And I was then seconded into a mental health CAMS team 
that's um, child and adolescent mental health services. Yes. So I trained under that team to become a, a behavior, a child and adolescent behavior specialist. Um, and there okay. was a moment where I'd found some research by some American doctors. I've looked at their names because I've never, I never, my memory's shot. So it's Dr. Vincent Fatelli and Dr. Robert Ander, who did a study on ACEs. And ACEs was an acronym for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Yes. And when I saw that word, Adverse Childhood Experiences, it really hit home. I started to look at that ACE study and realized they started looking at na naming ACEs, as in physical abuse, sex abuse, many lots of yep. things that you could name as an ace yes and they started to look at an ace score yes like you had you know and i think like nearly half the population have at least one ace yes they do yeah. have at least two aces and then when you get into having three or four of more um adverse childhood experiences you know the the, the more you're like the likelihood of becoming a drug addict is goes up by 14 percent issues by the same you're three times more likely to be excluded from school yeah a light bulb moment Lou, i just saw my entire life flash in front of me and at that moment i realized there was nothing wrong with me it's yes. what happened to me yeah and it was a, it was such a relief it was such a healing moment yeah it was the start of the journey of um loving myself yeah giving myself for some of the things I've done in the past I mean I'm I'm completely with you on the ACE study and the scoring and I think too it's a light bulb moment for me and and you and a lot of people that I work with um some people that I've read find that it's um stigmatizing to you know to give yourself that label but actually I think the pros of the ACE study and seeing those kind of questions outweigh the negatives, if you like. Yeah, and I think, like I said, the ACE study and the scoring isn't a diagnosis. No. I think if you get attached to you're giving yourself a diagnosis, I can understand what people think, but as a sort of a guideline or, you know, to show you what's happened, Yes. Um, to give you access to, because I think you then need to go further down the rabbit hole and start exploring yourself and whichever therapeutic technique that is, you know. And and the thing about, I talk about therapy, I remember once working in these schools, this young boy talked about therapy and he gave me the best definition of my job as a therapist. So he looked, I talked about what I was doing, we were talking with him and he just stopped and paused and then looked at me and went, so this therapy shit you do then, he went, is it just common sense with long words? And I was like, that's the best definition I've ever heard of being a, of being a child behavioral therapist. Oh, that's so, brilliant. But it's it just in that way, it was around just being able to go down and explore different things and look at myself. Yes. And look at the impact. And yeah, it's a life lifetime journey. I'm not a finished product. I don't think anybody is. No, none of us are. And I'm still dealing with stuff today. But that insight of it, like I say, I think it can be a bit crude. Yeah, and understand what people get. So I look at the ACE score. So I can, I think I can give myself an ACE score. I think it's about eight, is eight it? or nine, and then it's like, oh shit, am I still alive? Yeah. So for me, it went beyond that to then look at the meaning that we had, that we understand with trauma. It's a lot about the meaning we add to it. You know, yes. A single event. You know, it's not the event that caused you trauma. It's how that makes you feel. How you. Yes. You two different people who have the same experience. And. and it 
It's the reaction, isn't it, within us rather than what happens outside of us. So, you know, we've all got different nervous systems and we've all got different transgenerational or intergenerational trauma. And we've all got a certain um, robustness that comes from our attachment. But if there's a lack of attachment or bonding, plus all the event trauma on top, that leads to a very dysregulated system. Exactly. And you know, I said earlier on that, that young boy that worked in the hostel, when I saw the intergenerational trauma, I really got to see it in my own life and my own family. Yeah. And it gave me access to not blaming anymore. I'm not saying it's right or something who did, you know, but the thing of being able to understand a bit more of this intergenerational trauma, the whole epigenetics of this thing of yes. you know, what had gone on and that we were all victims. Just seeing that we're a traumatized civilization. We are completely going on, for, you know, and like we, you know, we said about the central nervous system, the trauma is in our, you know, this trauma in me was, it was as deep as my bones. Yes. You know, I, I thought for some of the addiction work that I did, it was about looking at mental health issues and what's in my head, there's something wrong with me and realize that it's a lot deeper than that. It's not in my head, you know, and then say, looking at all the attachment stuff and just being able to start to piece that together. Yes. To start to heal. Yes. And then go beyond healing and then sort of thriving. And it was like, yeah. you know, so that whole journey for me of self-discovery. And then it really linked into that promise that I'd made to transform the education system and realized that if we could make the education system more therapeutic, because I say I worked in drug addiction. So I worked in social care. I then worked in education and I then I worked in health and mental health. So I realized I'd I'd learned to speak three different languages of health education yes. and mental health. So it was around if I could take those learnings and put them in a school. And the reason I chose a school was I think, you know, looking at life, the company Life Chances, looking at transforming the life chances of our communities, where better than to be a heart of a community than in a school? Yeah. And if you can have social workers and mental health workers um, and trauma specialists working in a school, that's what would be the best place. And that's where Life Chance and School for Inspiring Talents came from. And so it's, it's that so 10 years ago, nearly. Yes. Um, my friend and some, a couple of my colleagues, Judith Johnson, who I work with as a co-founder and Dave Strudwick, we had a conversation around this. And it took about three years to get the funding because I didn't fit into any box, Lou. This is the thing. I kept trying to get funding and no one quite understood what the hell I was talking about. Because, <laughs> oh, you want to work with naughty children. Yeah. challenging behavior it's like no no that's just a behavior is just a communication of unmet need yes i don't want to name or label that so it took a while for people to get and to say there's been a huge shift in the last three or four years yeah trauma informed seems yeah. to be coming in much much more and people so, are kind of getting it yeah it's lovely because say that's seven years so three years to get the funding so the school's now in its seventh year amazing so the first three years it was really tough yeah and people not getting what we were doing but now it's really thriving there are lots of people who you know want to work alongside us support us yeah you know, from the school we really developed the therapeutic team so that's on site because as we know it's all about relationships totally you know, so these young people you know they work with a speech and language therapist they work with an occupational therapist so in that form we look at we'll do like a timeline so we know, for instance, that, um, as an example, so my head's gone a bit 
Now, language patterns where we will start to come involved in it with a child, but 18 months starting to make noises. Once yes. you the child's feel to say a few words of mummy and daddy, but sentences together. If there's an impact in the family, looking at drugs and alcohol, for an example, yeah. you know there's an interruption in that child's psychological development. So yeah. it will impact their speech and language. Of course. Development. So by working with our speech and language therapists, with our occupational therapists, by tracing back when this trauma happened, we can then start to fill in the gaps lovely and then because you know because a lot of these young people don't have a baseline for learning no of come course. in you know because again if you if you don't trust your primary carer you're not going to trust the teacher yeah and i think sometimes with education is like i'll oh, turn up at school and do what we tell you and trust us and you have to respect us so actually there needs to be a mutual respect and these young yeah. people need a bit more care and i think what's happening now is what we did seven years ago was seen as very specialist and it was for these young people who experience high level trauma we're now seeing that this approach could be used in mainstream settings because yeah. we are all traumatized on some yeah. level yes so, you know it's yes. someone asked me about you know i can sum it up and it's about just loving people yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. being kind and caring to people as well yes. all the science ago but it's for me it's the whole trauma movement trauma recovery movement, is the science of love and the science of hope Yes. Because we know I the plasticity of the brain and how much we can heal. So yeah. yeah, we have so children can come to our school from as early as five years old and they can stay with us up to the age of sixteen, year eleven. Great. But one of the one of the sisters, you can't join us over the age of twelve. Right. So the theory being that we would need a minimum of three years to work with someone. So we give ourselves four. Because it wouldn't be unfair to take a fifteen year old unpack the trauma and go i'm really sorry yeah, yeah no awful i agree with you so there's all that so now we've only just last july because of that that system had our first young person who graduated oh so, wow so, and he graduated he's now gone on to college to, to study drama great um, and that's so we we are starting to see the impact of this of work with these young people therapeutically overcoming and healing we i love about it the, we are a trauma recovery school. Yes. And I wish, I wish, Mark, that we could get you in trauma recovery schools throughout the country, throughout the world, throughout everything, because what a difference it would make. So lastly, just to wrap up, what is it for you now? Where's the future for you? Where are you heading? I think for me, it's around, there's a lot of handing over what I'm doing now the team has grown from say seven years ago we had eight students and we just had um three staff there's now you know over 60 students and we have capacity to take up to 100 if we need to but the staff team has grown to 80. Crikey. So it's around working being working in partnership with other agencies and people to look at working together to create systems that can transform these young people's amazing lives. So for me, you know, for me, there's a lot of, I'm going through a process of handing over. And it's like in my baby, it's, yes. like, it's grown so quick. It's actually got, it's actually, it's gone through its teenage years and it's leaving home now, which is really exciting. So for yes. me, the, the development of Life Chance training and consultancy is the next bit I'm focusing on. So we okay. can actually train other people um, in what we're doing. And then also not just what we're doing, but, create a system where we can bring in a lot more associates because this is so new that we're not experts. You know, we're, I really talk about 
that I'm having an inquisitive inquiry. I'm not an academic. I've just explored for myself and my own healing, shared what I know, and it just naturally has taken pace and people have come together. So yeah. it's around creating more of a community, of a trauma, yeah. a trauma healing community. This is Lovely. why I love the trauma thrivers. It's like you know, yeah. being part yeah. of connecting with people like yourself and your listeners to create a bigger community where we can keep sharing our yeah. stories, you know, our, how we heal, be there to support each other. And one of the sort of campaigns that we run is called TNT. Um, okay. Trauma needs talking about. Exploding yeah. the myth of talking about trauma. And that's one of the headings of one of the trainings. So that's the next stage. And we're, we're now setting up the Life Chance Trust. Okay. Then, so our students leave at 16. I say our first one's just left. And then the trust is now to continue to work with young people from 16 up to the age of so between 28 and 30, knowing that from a psychological point of view, um, neuro, neuroscience point of view, our brains don't sort of finish developing to... You know, quite often a lot of a lot of my female friends tell me that's crap that their husbands are 50 and they still haven't matured. I'm like, <laughs> probably doing that too. But it's around that we can still work with people and teach life skills and then hope and mentor them through this age of their life. So yeah, and they just see what yeah, it's, and then open it up to other people to come and share with us what they're yeah, doing. Yeah, that's great. But well, it's, like, it's not a finished product. I think we ever will be. I don't know what it would look like, but hopefully that we, you know. We can just talk more openly about trauma. Yeah. We can all support each other to heal. Yeah, that would be my wish too. And if people want to find out more, I know that you've got a book out at the moment. I don't know whether you can wave that at the screen. I can wave that. I can sure I can wave the book. So I have a book, yeah. So um, One More Life Chance, How to Support the Journey from Trauma to Transformation. So that tells a little bit more about my backstory and it will go in a bit more detail about the things that happened to me as a child, what that looked, what the impact was like, and that journey. And it's and there's some case studies in there from the school that we work at. It's right. all about the philosophy. If you people want to know a little bit more about the ACE study and what adverse child experiences are and how they impact young people, you can read a bit more about that. Yeah. Book um, or visit our website, which is um, lifechance.org.uk. All right, brilliant. Love to hear what people are up to, and you can see a lot more there about what we're doing what the schools are doing and training courses that we've got coming up as okay. well so and you know i i hope in the future now that we've connected and we've connected even more and i really hope this was helpful for the trauma thrivers audience you know that we're going to keep helping and supporting each other hopefully on our journeys and anything i can do i think what you're doing is amazing absolutely amazing and the stories being shared in trauma thrivers where um facebook group is really helpful because you know i'm you know, i'm here today sat in front of you in my office talking about all the positives and you know i'm feeling really good today but there are moments when i think all of us know that it's really sure that it's not always like this no. so for myself the continues to be part of that group and reading people's stories like yours the other day and realizing that we're all in this together yeah really thank helpful you. so yeah, yeah keep sharing everyone in the group yeah so thanks and, well. and lovely to have you in that group as well and your experience and thank you for sharing it with us today because it's very touching and there's a lot of similarities and i loved the bit in the police station <laughs> Yeah, and that turning well, point. How the hell that happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and I'm sure that there'll be lots more stories to come over the next few years. Anyway, maybe we'll have to do part two. 
Yeah, I'm starting to get more confident to share about what, what happened. Yeah, well, it was it's great and it's lovely, and I and I know it will help some people listening. So thank you and thank you for your time, yeah. and I'm sure we'll catch up very soon. Thank you, Lou. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. I hope it helped you in some way, and I really hope to see you back here soon. If you have anything to share on today's experience or podcast, please nip over to the YouTube channel or the Facebook group Trauma Thrivers and let us know there.